Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket. I'm your host, Peter Delapena, and on today's episode, we welcome Scotland captain and ICC associate player of the decade of the 2010s, Kyle Kutzer. Scotland is going to be kicking off the Cricket World Cup League 2 Tri-Series against USA starting on May 28th in Perrin, Texas at Moose's Stadium. And so Kyle was generous enough to come on the podcast to talk about his experiences over the years, his batting philosophies that have made him so successful. It's really fascinating to hear him talk about some of the strategies and the mental framework that goes into being such a successful player at the top of the order for a leading associate. And we also talk about Scotland's record against USA over the years where Kyle has been a part of those contests dating back to 2010 and we'll talk all that and more but before we get into that I want to remind everybody that the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket is also sponsored by Moosa Cricket Stadium which again is going to be hosting not just the Scotland and the UAE USA Tri-Series but also the USA Nepal Man Tri-Series over the course of the next three weeks in May and June they're about to become the 213th ODI venue in the course of cricket's history. Moose Cricket Stadium has been a longtime sponsor of the podcast. So by all means, come on out to Pearland to watch the matches. For more information, visit www.moosastadium.com. That's M-O-O-S-A stadium.com. Moose Cricket Stadium in Pearland, Texas. And the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast is also sponsored by Crickbuster. An ICC-designated official travel agent for the 2022 Men's T20 World Cup in Australia. They're your one-stop shop for everything you need to enjoy a one-of-a-kind experience down under this October. For more information, go to www.crickbuster.com to begin planning your trip today. Today's edition of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket. We're joined by Scotland men's captain and ICC associate player of the decade for the 2010s, Kyle Kutzer. Kyle! Welcome to the show. Hi, Peter. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, um, always a pleasure talking to you, so I'm looking forward to this. Be careful what you wish for, Kyle. <laughs> you know when you, you get into a chat with me, you know how long these things can go. Yeah, well, I'll just wait for you to uh, get the questions out, and then by the time you've got the question out, I'll, I'll certainly have an answer ready. So there we go. I'll answer the question before you finish saying it. <laughs> USA is going to be playing Scotland in the ODI World Cup League 2 Tri-Series. It's going to start May 28th in Perlin, Texas, at the new Moose Stadium facility, new ODI status stadium facility. Moose has been around since 2015, but it's going to be hosting ODIs for the first time. First time there's going to be ODIs in the Lone Star State. Kyle, when you started your career, did you ever imagine you'd be playing international cricket in the state of Texas? I certainly didn't, but then again, not many people would have thought Scotland would be playing international cricket either, so there we go, so uh, the cricketing game has, has certainly grown, but yeah, it's been one thing on the bucket list, to be honest, to try and play play cricket in, in USA, and getting the opportunity to travel with Scotland is going to be going to be really special, it'll be an exciting, exciting trip. What are you most looking forward to about playing cricket in the USA? I don't really know, to be honest. I just think the fact that we get to go to the USA and, you know, play some high quality cricket out there to see what's an offer as well. You know, I think it's exciting to see how the game's growing, 
not only within Scotland, but in other countries around the world. And USA is one of those, which just seems, it just seems an exciting place to play cricket. There's always um, something going on, I guess. And just really looking forward to locking horns with, with USA out in USA. And I think you've probably got a, a handful of, I say you, but I think USA have got a, a handful of useful grounds uh, over there already. So yeah, it'd be exciting to go and go and see what, what's an offer and play a few games out there. Do you have any special family requests for things to bring back? Is anybody, your wife, your daughters, are they asking for cowboy hats or other, <laughs> other American goods that they want back in your suitcase? Not yet. Not yet. I'm sure I'll get a few requests over the next week before we leave or next two weeks or three weeks when, when as the tour is going on. But yeah, um, we might have a few of our players coming back with like the, the, the things on the back of their heels, whatever is on the, on the, on the, on the cowboy boots, guys will be running the ball, making sure they're not bowling no balls because those are in the back of their feet. Just give them an extra couple of centimetres. I don't think you have come to the U.S. Open off memory, but some of the guys in the team, Safian Sharif, Cal McLeod, and I'm not sure if Richie Barrington has to, but there are quite a few guys who have played in the USA before, different from playing the USA national team. Obviously, the most recent opportunity you would have had to play USA would have been just before the pandemic in December 2019 in that tri-series that was held in the UAE but in terms of playing in America itself what kind of feedback have you gotten from some of the Scotland teammates about their experiences in terms of on the field and off the field hospitality well it's not it's not often that I catch you out or know more info than you about um, American cricket but I actually played in the for the Florida Scorpions in the U.S. Open in December, so yeah, tells you how much experience. I was I was paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, like I said, it's not often that um, I'll catch you out on a minor detail, but yeah, there were a few of us that played for the Florida Scorpions in December this last year. Uh, myself, uh, Cal McLeod, Richie Barrington, Hamza Tahir, and Safian Sharif, and we. We lost in the semi-final to the U.S. All-Stars um, after scoring. I think we, we scored a, a score of over 200 and they knocked it off because Lendl Simmons got 100 and no time at all. So we we experienced, I guess, the good and the bad of that tournament. It was slightly wet, I would say, on one day and we ended up playing the game and it was an interesting game. We, we came out on top. We were all sat, sat in our rooms. Some guys were in a shopping mall because it was like the game's never on. And then get to the ground, the tosses in 30 minutes was a bit of a shock. So we, we all rushed to the ground to try and play a game. And, and we, we, we got through that one. And then um, we played in a couple of absolute roads at the ball. We had Steve Mullaney in our team who terrorises in England and during white ball with his variations with the off cutters and leg cutters and little swingers and things like that. And guys are just putting their foot down the pitch and lamping him for a six. So he was like, what, what is this? And it's the challenge of associate cricket in many ways. You know, you've got people who are certainly capable of playing the game. You know, that there's no fear in, in, in some, some play. And these guys are just lamping him for six. So, so the cricket was, was good. There was some, some really good teams in that competition, actually. And I think they'd, from what I'd been told, teams had been uh, reduced and the quality of the teams had then been increased because there were less less sides. So we certainly had a strong side with John Simpson 
Steve Melanian and those Kamal Leverock. I was going to say, it's uh, coming Delray back to me Rollins. now. You, yeah, you had the two Bermudians, I remember now. Yeah, that, that yeah. stood out. It was it was a uh, combined associate unit of uh, guys from Scotland and Bermuda and elsewhere. Yeah, and we, we played some really good cricket, actually. And other than the first game when it was a bit wet, the, the pitches were pretty good and the ground was great there in Florida and there was a few women watching. And yeah, it was it was definitely a worthwhile exercise. And it's certainly from Callum's experience and Sapien's experience, it was a, a massive step up from where that competition was. So I guess that's only positive and exciting for US cricket. In the past, the US Open, going back six, seven years, at times they expanded it way too much. It became way too bloated and you had 40, 50, almost 60 teams, I think, in some years. And what happened was the group stages were just so lopsided because some teams were just entering they just wanted to be there and kind of rub shoulders and they were just happy to take part, but there was not a real genuine competitive element in a lot of the matches in the group stage. And it wasn't really until you got to the quarterfinals or the semifinals where you played your first meaningful match. And then in recent years, the organizers have tried to cut it back and make the competition a bit more intense in the earlier part so that guys are getting good matches throughout instead of waiting until the knockout stages and, that's had an impact on the tournament and it sounds like that is the case again from, from what you're yeah. describing this past year. Yeah. Well, what I will say is it was certainly meaningful, meaningful cricket in the majority of cases and during the tournament this year, well, last year, sorry. And there were some high quality players throughout most of the teams really. So run, run rates were over 10 runs and over. Um, so yeah, there was clearly something good going on there. So I would I would recommend playing it. Our, our our team owner was excellent and looked after us looked after us very well. Were you surprised when you got there about the level of player beyond the associate realm? Uh, obviously, you would have done some research before you got there to know who you're playing against. But just in person, the fact that not just you're playing against some of these guys. But the fact that they're all coming to the USA and a lot of people don't realize that some private events like the US Open and some other events, you get a hell of a lot of players come from the West Indies. Andre Russell will come. He's He's been somebody who's known to come to the US Open a number of times over the years. Nicholas Poron, Rad Emirate, Sunil Narayan has come in the past. You, you mentioned Lendl Simmons destroyed you guys with the, the big innings. And there's players from Pakistan who will come. You mentioned Steve Mullaney was in your own team from England, but the width and the breadth of players, not just from the associate world. I mean, guys like yourself, I know Paris Kotka has come in the past. There's other guys from around the associate sphere who come to this event. Um, I think even Ahmed Raza has come and um, you, you just get a big scope of players from the associate community, mainly from the USA and Canada for geographic reasons, but it's, it goes well beyond that, but also in the full member sphere, did that surprise you at all? And what do you think that implies in terms of USA's place in the global cricket community? Did it surprise me of the quality of player? Uh, the simple answer is no. And the reason being is I've played in associate circles for, for many, many years now, probably too many. And you come across loads and loads of really dangerous cricketers you know, my example of Steve Mullaney, who um, has a skillful bowler, bowls various change-ups and has a real good game plan when he plays in England. And I think his eyes are opened a little bit. Where he, he came to me the one day and he said, Cal, I think I should bowl from this end. 
uh, and this is my type of wicket. And it was because it was slightly sticky and he could get a few to hold with his cutters. And the guys just kept lamping him for six. Like, he might not have bowled as well as what he, he hoped he could have done, but that's just a prime example. I've seen my days at North Ants, Steve Mullaney, come and play against us at North Ants for knots. And he picked up four wickets and he was just bowling, you know, using his, his skill and his trickery and, and guys couldn't get him away. And then come to US Open and I guess some so-called unknown names in terms of the international stage are just hitting him <laughs> wherever they wanted, you know. So the, was I surprised? No. Um, was there more players that travelled in terms of international cricket? Yes, there was probably a couple more than I thought there might be. So that's a, a real pat on the back, I guess, to the competition and to the owners to be reaching out. But in terms of the the skill and the, the players, I guess, more locally, uh, I wasn't surprised, no. I want to go back to the early days. Kyle Kutzer, growing up in Aberdeen. Uh, when I visited Aberdeen back in the summer of 2019, there's all this stuff there about Don Bradman. That's where he played his last match on the – his final tour of England, and you see the pictures of the crowds there. There's a rich cricket history, rich cricket tradition in Aberdeen, and you're obviously a part of that. A lot of people associate more cricket in, I guess, the modern era of Scotland cricket. The majority of the matches that are the marquee matches get played in Edinburgh, the Grange, and that's where, obviously, the famous victory over England happened, and also the victory over Zimbabwe a couple of years ago, but there's just a significant history in, in Aberdeen. So for people who've never been to Aberdeen, what's cricket like there growing up in the 1990s before taking it to the rest of the world? Yeah, I loved, I honestly, I loved my cricket in Aberdeen. I was very fortunate. That, that, I mean, there were two clubs who played nationally uh, and one was Aberdeenshire or, or where they play at Manifield, where we play the those ODIs. And the other was our home club called Stonywood Dice Cricket Club. My family was a, was a big part of that club and uh, the amalgamation from Stonywood and Dice, we brought them together and, and my old man was quite a big part of that. We were heavily involved, well, my, my dad was really heavily involved in, in bringing in overseas amateurs and overseas pros and, and things like that. For years, probably 10 years growing up, we always had an overseas player living with us. So turning up to cricket, it was always good fun. There was always someone who was, who was you know, wanting to have a bit of a practice or, or even kick a rugby ball about or a football. There was always someone around, so I used to love that. Um, I've got two older brothers as well. So being the youngest, um, I was always battling against them, but never never shying off, I guess. So, yeah, it was good. We We played there's a, a grades system which is basically various leagues it was grade one to grade five possibly grade six I, I can't remember exactly and that still runs around locally around Aberdeen and the grade one was was a pretty good standard really uh, from what I remember competitive some tough teams and then when Cricket Scotland started the national league our, our first team at the club reached that level qualified for it and we would have to travel well our, our nearest away game was in Dundee which is an hour and 20 minutes our furthest was probably three hours into Glasgow and then Edinburgh was the best part two and a half hours so you're talking about 
basically half of your games every year, barring the one to Dundee, you're traveling two and a half hours there and two and a half hours back. So you can imagine as a, as a group, I was too young at the time, but the players old enough would have a, you know, you'd drive down, you'd probably stop off and grab some food, play a game of cricket, and then you'd probably have a few beers in the bus on the way back. Not me, obviously. But they did, and we'd have a designated driver each time. So it was it was great as people were singing on the bus on the way back. So the atmosphere and growing up, the commitment to playing at the highest level was really amazing to see, actually. It seems to be harder, getting harder for players to commit at that time. But people used to train on a Tuesday and a Wednesday. As us being a cricketing family, we would never miss a session. And we'd probably travel to Edinburgh or Dundee or Glasgow. On, on a Saturday to play a game of cricket so the commitment to that was was second to none to be honest and it was a real special time at our club I always remember the youngster about 13 years old or whatever batting on uncovered pitches just like Don Don would have done back in the day and uh, the ball bouncing and going over your head and all sorts and um, but that was the battle so used to love it Mention the overseas pros that would come and stay with your family and also your older brothers and one of them, Stuart, also represented Scotland briefly. What was it like yeah. growing up in a household where it wasn't just your dad who was pushing the cricket, but you had uh, siblings who encouraged that love of the game as well? Yeah, it was great having having two older brothers who played. You know, that I sort of followed them around, really, um, when they were playing when I was too young, I guess. I'd follow them around and watch them play. I'd follow my dad around and watch him play. But I would always be playing on the side of the field somewhere. Uh, and I think my first ever sort of game was because someone dropped out. So they were like, right, Kyle, are you okay to play? I can't even remember how old I was. I was probably like nine or eight or something like that, playing for an under-13 game. And I just had a sawn-off short-handled bat. So it was a full-size bat. And my dad was like, right, just cut the end off. And I used that and I batted probably top scored in the game, actually. I seem to remember doing okay or get, getting knocked out or, or something like that. But yeah, that was that was my sort of first experience of playing and playing with them. Um, we were actually really lucky at our family. My my mum's brother, so my uncle, Grant Dugmore, was a, a very good cricketer. So he came over and was the pro at the club for a few years. And he played various SA country districts in South Africa, so you're you're, dro you're a, dropping a, a bomb into the chat here, Kyle. Not just a South Africa domestic cricketer, Grant Dugmore, associate cricket legend, yeah. Argentina. Yes, yeah. So he played cricket for Argentina. Uh, yeah, he, he represented uh, the Americas, I think, uh, at board level, or uh, possibly. Um, he was not. Yeah, he was not. Not only the Argentina captain, the longtime Argentina player, he was the Argentina cricket board CEO for quite a number of years too. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my mom's brother. So um, we, we once played a seven-a-side competition in Aberdeen, at a place called Gordonians. And the team consisted of myself, my two brothers, Sean and Stuart, my dad, Peter, my uncle, Grant. So that's five. And my, my, uh, my dad's brother, Chris. So that's six of us. And then there was one lone soldier. I can't remember who the other person was. He wasn't a a family member so there was there was six out of the seven players playing in that competition that were from the same family so that's that's sort of how how things worked around our club and yeah grant grant was an excellent coach grant my dad being my being my dad i guess as kids do you don't tend to listen to your parents as much but so i think my dad sort of always set 
set grant on us to take us for um, cricket sessions and private work and stuff like that. So Grant taught us a, a lot, taught us a, a, you know, he really did. He was a superb coach and I'm sure he still is when he, when he has time to do it. So yeah, we were very lucky to have that. And Grant was an amazing player. So um, he led the way in many ways. In terms of the pedigree in your family, when you've got uh, an uncle like that and you talk about your dad and I mentioned before your older brother made it to Scotland as well. Did you ever feel any pressure to live up to certain expectations or to, to play to a certain level because you had all these people in your family who had risen to a certain stature, whether it was within South Africa cricket, the domestic scene there, or within the Scotland setup? No, not really, to be honest. I guess the pressure started much later than that. In terms of playing cricket, it was it was just fun and I enjoyed it. There was no there was no pressure to ever perform you know, you, you learned along the way and people people taught you lessons. It was great. You know, when Scotch cricket started having junior levels, I think we started with three games a year. So it was like three under 13 games a year and that was it. And then following that, it it had a festival plus a couple of games and then it just grew from, from there. I, I always remember winning Scotland's first ever under 13s game, I think it was, or maybe it was 15s, I'm not sure against Durham and we were playing at Fetters College in, in Edinburgh. And that was a pretty monumentous day for us. We knew that was the first county we'd ever beaten. Uh, you know, you spoke about my brothers, my, my eldest brother, Captain Scotland Under-19s. He played for Scotland A. He was a he was a good cricketer. He was probably the most gutsy cricketer out of the three of us, to be honest. But he probably missed the boat a little bit because of, of his age, really, and what opportunities were around at the time. Stuart potentially was probably the best player out of the three of us, but he was also the cleverest. So he realized that he's not going to probably make any money out of playing cricket in Scotland. So, so he went and got himself a real job. And then I think the timing, the sort of stars aligned a little bit for me and the timing of when opportunities sort of opened up and where there was more cricket to play, I guess it became slightly more professional. Uh, Scotland got in the YB40s. I luckily got into Durham Academy and went down that route. So I guess the stars probably aligned a little bit more for me. Stuart also played for Scotland in the 19s. He did play a couple of internationals. He played in the game that Scotland first beat Bangladesh, but that was before they were a test nation, I think. I could be wrong. At the Grange, and then Stuart also played a few YB40 games. He's, Stuart's well known for, after the game, they would put a drinks order around, and people say, like, what do you want? And people would say, like, orange and pint of orange and lemonade and someone might have a pint of beer or something after the game or something. Stuart was always well known for asking for a double Jack and Coke to following his first YB40 game. But that was his, his character and the way he liked to enjoy himself as he, as he played, I guess. So that was after the game, obviously not during the game or not before it, not like people used to do at lunch and maybe have a glass of wine or something. I was going to say certain, certain, well, it was a cricket, yeah, that, that would be uh, what you'd have at fine leg while the bowler's running in. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure if, if it was a few years before that, I'm sure Stuart would have certainly attempted that down at fine leg. So, yeah, look, I was very lucky with my, my upbringing. I had, my dad used to show us up all the time. He would uh, he would get off the flight. Being at Stonywood Dice, our cricket ground is actually inside the airport grounds. So you look over the fence and the runway's there. 
you can actually see people's faces through the windows of the planes. You know, not very clearly, but the, the planes are coming over the corner of the ground that low that you can actually see see some silhouettes in the windows. So I've got away with the odd nick through to the keeper now and then um, back in the day. You couldn't hear because of the jet engines. But yeah, we used to pick pick my old man up from the airport. He would drive around, get, get driven around, and he'd turn up and, and play on a Saturday for us and regularly score more runs than the three of us. I always remember the day he came back and yes, Arafat was playing for Clydesdale and he walked out, didn't bat with a helmet like he usually, well, like he usually didn't. Maybe he got convinced to put one on that day, but I always remember not batting with one. So I'll continue with that part of the stories of not using one against Yasser. Probably on single figures, he, he tore his Achilles or his calf and he couldn't run. So he just, he wasn't the most pleasant batter to watch if I'm being honest he was leaning his bat over the top but he was effective you know but he proceeded to get 70 odd with Yasser leading the attack for Clydesdale and I'm pretty sure I helped Stoney would win the win the game that day and he was on crutches for probably another two months after that so it just sort of showed his character you know he was a pretty fine cricketer really he certainly showed us all how to play the game in a tough tough manner and then we had Grant my mum's brother was a fine cricketer and and my mum's dad who played um representative cricket uh, if I'm not if I'm sure she'll correct me but I'm pretty sure he played for Eastern Province to some extent and scored scored a few hundreds and his name was Sid, Sid Dugmore so he was he was also a fine cricketer so he always said that I needed to just catch up with the amount of hundreds he scored so um, I'll have to follow that up you know whenever we were over there we'd have a have a good chat and he would play around with us you know but yeah so there's a there's a I guess there's a rich cricketing background within our, our family I guess just sporting really so I was I was pretty lucky to have have that around every corner wherever it was it was rugby it was football it was hockey anything really a golf is not one that any of our family are any good actually so I can't claim claim that so despite uh, all the rich golfing history in Scotland there's no golf in the Kutcher family I can't even claim any of us to be any good to be honest my, my brother Stuart would would probably say he's he would top the pile in the family. Um, I always remember playing a round of golf at Atlantic Beach uh, in Cape Town, and it's a it's a really windy course. It's quite narrow, a lot of area that you can't actually get to. So if you hit the ball out of bounds or just off the fairway, for that matter, the ball was gone. So this guy came round to us, and he must have been watching us. And he came round in his buggy, and he had like a bag full of balls, and he's like do you guys want any balls? And me and Stuart sort of looked at each other because we'd bought some at the start of the round and we thought, now we're okay, we've got loads. Literally three holes later, he drove past and we had to wave him down. That, that many balls are disappearing into the <laughs> into the bushes and like, you're not going to go hunting for balls there anyway. But yeah, so I'm not claiming he's any better than me, that's for sure. Was cricket always your first love? You mentioned being from a sporting family or was there some other sport among those that you mentioned that you really like first and then you gravitated towards cricket later just because of what your family heritage was yeah I, th I think cricket was rugby was played at the wrong time of year for me I'm a bit of a softy when it comes to the weather a bit cold so yeah I sort of migrated to the summer sports football before my legs became a bit too long for me I, I, I used to have decent coordination in my bottom half and that that soon became evident when I started growing that football probably wasn't my thing, but yeah, I'll be honest, football, I used to play in the, in the leagues outside of Aberdeen and I used to love it. And I was, I was a decent enough player, 
not that I, I sort of played to any high level, but I was a decent enough player. It was the aggression uh, and the intent to hurt people sometimes in football that pushed me away from it. I noticed it when I went into the Aberdeen leagues, and that's maybe people playing just a bit tougher, you know, and throwing themselves about. But comments when people are like, "Oh, I'm going to break your legs next time you next time you run past me," uh, and people will know that clearly my change of pace is one of my strengths, even at my age of 38. Chances are that they were probably going to get hold of me because I'm not going to really get past them, especially especially now. Uh, that was one of the things that turned me away from football. I guess the I would say the language, the behaviour, the stuff that I just didn't want to be associated with. So cricket was the sport that I was enjoying playing the most and I was probably around the most as well. So that was what that's what took me to that. And the other thing you mentioned there was that you would have these trips to South Africa. Uh, you were born in Aberdeen, grew up in Aberdeen, but your, yeah. your brothers were born in South Africa. Your, yeah. your parents are from South Africa. So how much of an influence did having that heritage in, and how frequently did you go to visit South Africa over the course of growing up in, in terms of not just family visits, but how much cricket did you play over there that aided in any of your development? Yeah, my, my development was solely out of Scotland, if I'm being honest. Uh, there might have been influential people who came from South Africa, like my uncle and, and overseas pros and amateurs, but all my cricket learning was in Scotland. Up until the end of school, so so we used to visit visit South Africa once every two years, probably, uh, and it was great because we used to get out of school and we'd have three weeks of holiday, and we would travel travel the country, stay in some amazing places. My dad's got this habit of just saying, "Right, get in the car, we're going," and honestly, we would eat bread and jam for two of the three weeks because that was all that was all they'd, they'd go to the market they'd buy a loaf of bread and jam because we wouldn't know where we'd go and we'd just drive and back then you didn't have your phones that you could figure out where you wanted to stay it was like leaflets and look on the map and just drive in a road and away you'd go so we would end up in the most random places but they were stunning sort of untouched places that happened to have usually a pretty amazing hotel somewhere so that was that was how we did it we did it on a a tight budget I guess there was no no plan really and we'd visit family and just make our way there some some way or shape or form so in terms of cricket there was none I didn't play any cricket in South Africa until I until I joined Durham and left school then I would go regularly probably every winter really and spend the best part of four or five months in South Africa playing playing cricket so yeah I in terms of learning all my all my learnings down to the Scottish system and Durham you know I guess when I signed for Durham so uh, all my learnings over here. Walking through some scorecards now you played for Cape Town in the Western Province club competition out there so you played 18, for Scot so Scotland under 19. 20, 20 years ago it would have been I would have been 18. December 2002 that's the first scorecard I'm finding here Montrose versus Cape Town is the one so that's right after you represented Scotland under 19s and Scotland Day for the first time you would have gone to Cape Town and batted at number eight was that or try from prior card from so a little bit of initiation there they're not just going to give you special yeah. privileges just because you're from Scotland well, I don't think anyone had seen a Scottish cricketer at that point in South Africa, or if they had done it, it was very far and few between. I know 
Dougie Lockhart had played some games in, in that league, which would probably been a few years before that. But yeah, I, I that must have been my first first team game. But when I arrived there, I started in the third team. So I, I turned up, I was on the Western Province Cricket Academy at the time. And I arrived out in Cape Town. First time I met all these players, jumped on a combi and drove 10 hours to Bloemfontein for an academy week. On that bus was players like Rory Kleinfeld, JP Dumini, William Hantam, uh, Ferhan Behardin were all in this all of, all in this minibus. And because you sat 10 hours on a combi, you sort of get to know people pretty quickly by the time you're up there. And I was a pretty shy young young lad, I guess. And I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Got all the way up there. Played in one of the coldest days I've ever played in, in Bloemfontein, I reckon. And I played, ended up playing a couple of games and getting 70-odd in one against Eastern Province. We ended up playing in the final of that competition against Natal. And funnily enough, I bowled 10 overs. I don't know why, but I did. And then I went back to Cape Town. A few weeks later, I joined Cape Town Cricket Club. One of the other members in the academy took me to Cape Town. And I started in the third team, got 30, 30 runs, not out, I think. And they said, right, you play in the seconds next week. Played in the seconds, got 70 against Western Province Cricket Club, I think. And they told me, whatever you do, just get a few runs next week and you'll be in the first team. So I got a duck and still played in the first team the following week and batted at seven or eight. So I always remember, I think my first first team game or one of the first first team games, obviously you said was against Montrose. And that was a an eye opener for me because there was it was an interesting field. Let's say there was a few bottle tops and bits of glass on the outfield. And I think there was a, some... Possibly a funeral or or something. I'm not totally sure, but I remember hearing a few few gunshots in the background, which is a bit interesting for a, for a young lad. And, it sounds uh, like it sounds yeah. like the New Jersey New York club cricket experience, Kyle. <laughs> so, so yeah. Look, it was it was a quick learning experience, but tell you what, those guys knew how to play cricket in that league. It's it wasn't all sunshine and uh, rainbows, I guess you would turn up and play against some brilliant cricketers. I remember t- turning up playing against Neil Johnston and Andrew Puttick, Alan Dawson, like a load of players who ended up playing cricket for South Africa were playing in that league. And it was tough. You know, the, the ground, some of the grounds were stunning, but some of them were tough. You know, people played tough cricket. And uh, the way they had to train, I imagine if training facilities probably weren't the best at some grounds, but it just, it just bred a tough standard of cricket so yeah I I loved it and yeah it was a it was an eye-opener for me but yeah starting the thirds and making my way all the way up which which I guess is the way it should be done really but it's not always done these days I don't think it was tough cricket but not so tough that any of these bowlers were threatening to break your legs like they were on the football field (laughs) of Aberdeen no but they 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 might have threatened to uh, bully a few bouncers you know but you had the ability to play it that was your your option you know you could play it but if someone's trying to take you out from behind you know there's probably less less option to get out of the way of that sometimes so I always remember facing an absolute barrage from a guy called Quinton Friend who I think also played a test match for South Africa relatively sharp yeah we we sent out my best man actually a guy called Nathan Palmer we sent him out to be night watchman and he dropped and ran a quick single to get to the other end so he wasn't quite doing his job job the way he should have done so yeah, we battled away in that day, but yeah, look, there's some there's some great cricket cricketers in that league, and but I do think like any cricket, any club cricket these days, people are finding other things to do, which is a concern. So um, whether it's it's the same standard or is it me that's just turning into a 
getting to an age where it's like back in my day, the cricket was much better. But it might be might be part of that possibly. But I'm sure I'm sure it's still still decent. Back in your day, you talked about playing for your your brothers, your family playing for Scotland under 19s, and you go to South Africa, and that was just after going to the under 19 World Cup with Scotland in 2002 you came up through the age group scene you played Scotland under 15s under 17s under 19s starting in 1998 was your first time representing the Scotland under age group teams and then you kept on working your way up and going through the Durham system too but that World Cup experience in 2002 at that point in time the under 19 World Cup isn't really known now as it was then it doesn't have the reputation it was still fairly early it was only the second or third edition at that point in time so it didn't quite have the allure and all this tv and media exposure that it does now and where it's it's broadcast all around the world but going to that event you mentioned lendl simmons at u.s open in florida lendl simmons has been haunting you for 20 years <laughs> now it's scotland's first game of the world cup against West Indies under 19. This was at Carisbrook in Dunedin in New Zealand. Donovan Pagan and Lendl Simmons put on a 240-run partnership. Lendl Simmons, 121 not out. Donovan Pagan, 176 opening the batting. You also had Dwayne Bravo opening the batting. Very different Dwayne Bravo as an opening batter uh, in, in that team. Uh, Narsing Dinarain, who is now applying his trade in San Francisco, for people who have not been following U.S. cricket, he's a uh, former West Indies international. We even made its debut against Australia back in the mid-2000s at Tesla, level, but has been in the U.S. now for a couple of years. Robbie Rampal, Darren Sammy, who is also in that team. Ryan Nurse. Now, Ryan Nurse, my club cricket team in Manchester, Swinton Moorside. Ryan Nurse was our overseas pro a couple of years ago, and he's, he's nicknamed uh, Chicken Breast. Because, that must have been interesting. Yeah, he's got a unique nickname. Everybody knows him as Chicken Breast. They don't. They don't know him as Ryan Harris. They just know him as Chicken Breast. It's Swinton Moorside. But he was. I wasn't around the club at the time when he was our overseas pro. But everybody says he was frighteningly quick as a guy, and he was. He was so crazy and wild that played for West Indies under nineteen, and apparently he came to our club and he's bowling bouncers at like thirteen and fourteen year old kids. Uh, he just said no restraint whatsoever. So these are the kind of players you were coming up against in the West Indies under nineteen team. What was that experience like for you going to the World Cup that year in New Zealand? New Zealand, well, amazing country, first of all. But I was, I think I must have been 16, maybe, at that stage. Yeah, we had a couple of young players in there as well. Uh, Money Bickball was an amazing leg spinner. Kazim Sheikh was a good young player coming through as well. My brother was wicketkeeper at the time. So we had some exciting players in, in that group and, Playing in the World Cup was just the biggest occasion ever for any of us. Getting to play in the world stage, getting to play against the likes of West Indies, Australia during that turn was, you know, I think that set the tone really. I think that sort of gave me the the hunger to keep playing cricket, if I'm being honest. So we were miles off the pace as a team. Like we had quite a good team, but absolutely zero exposure to that level of cricket. Zero. So those players in that team, if if we had the exposure the players have now, I would expect that team to have, have performed a bit better. But yeah, having zero exposure, not playing any games, you know, probably have six games a year for Scotland in the 19s and then you're rocking up against West Indians and some Australians who are probably in the verge of playing state cricket. Cameron White was one of those who played, I think, for Australia. 
He scored. I'm looking at the scorecard now. 156 not out off 121 balls. Cameron White in the match against Scotland. They also had in that team Sean Marsh, Dan Christian, Bo Kasson, Mark Cosgrove, Adam Crossthwaite, Xavier Darty. A lot of guys who went up playing for Australia at senior level, whether in test cricket or women's overs cricket. So you're facing a pretty stacked lineup. Yeah, and that's exposure, isn't it? You know, they would be playing a lot more cricket than what we were. They'd be playing state cricket. Literally what we would have is a tour to Derby and we play against Derby three three times and then maybe travel one other place and have another two games and then go home. That, that would be our year. And then we might play against Holland and Northern Ireland. So you're talking maybe maybe eight games a year or something you're trying to compete with that so but like I said you know going back to the World Cup getting the chance to play in the World Cup was the biggest thing the biggest driving force for me and I just wanted to play in it again and I still have that now you know I still have that in terms of the T20 and 50 over World Cup sort of on the on the horizon you know we've got to qualify for the 50 over World Cup hence why we're coming to USA so yeah they were the biggest biggest driving forces and I don't think people can underestimate the value of the under-19 World Cup now. now. We mentioned a lot of the full member players you were coming up against and you get a, a, an eye-opening experience from that regard but also the associate teams you came up against. You played against Kenya, Namibia, Canada and Nepal in the tournament between the group stage and the plate competition and even amongst those guys I'm curious to get your thoughts on where you felt you measured up against some of those other teams, especially a team like Kenya or Canada in that era, or even Namibia, who was going to go to the Men's World Cup in the following year. Some of the guys in those teams, so just run through quick, Nehemiah Odiambo, Amara Zuma, Rageb Aga, who was the captain of the Kenya under-19 team in that World Cup. The Canada team, Ashish Bagai, was captain of the Canada under-19s, and he had a very lengthy and distinguished career for Canada, captain them at uh, Men's World Cup in 2011 and you also had in the Nepal team Shakti Gauchan, you know Das captain Nepal at senior level but um, Shakti Gauchan, who was a long time left arm spinner and all around at the start of his career a very uh, illustrious name in the history of Nepalese cricket and Basanta Regman to the left arm spinners so there's quite a lot of guys there who you were coming up against and the results you had, you wound up actually beating both Canada and Kenya in that Kenya. event. You lost to Nepal. In the but... semi-final, I remember it. I remember yeah, so it take me through some of those experiences and just, just from the standpoint of what it was like measuring yourself up against other associate competition who, like I said, in that time frame, Kenya was really regarded as the elite associate in that era. And even Canada was was really a preeminent associate, both of them going to World Cups consistently. And here you are measuring yourself up against them at junior level at a time when Scotland was not where they are now. So that was where Scotland was aspiring to be. So what did you take out of that World Cup experience, not just against the full members that you faced against yeah. like Cameron White, Lendl Simmons, West Indies and Australia, but also the associate competition you were coming up against yeah. and, and where you needed to close the gap to get to that same place, whether at junior level or at senior level. I guess there was quite a lot of unknowns, wasn't there, you know, in terms of the associate competition we're coming up against. I guess we heard Kenya were meant to be a good team and we knew Canada were, you know, obviously going to be a, a pretty decent team. But I guess we saw them as equals really at that stage, you know, because... No one had really played many World Cups at that point. No one had played against each other at all, really, at, at that level. 
So yeah, there was a lot of unknowns, but I, I don't think we necessarily had any any fears really against any of those teams. We wanted to be the the best associate team there. You know, we won a couple of those games, but I, I do remember clearly Kenya having someone who bowled it pretty quickly. Can't remember his name exactly. And he was, there was a lot of talk going around him. That might have even been Odiambo, actually, now that I think back. back what about yeah, Nehemiah Odiambo. And then I don't remember a huge amount about the Canada game, actually. But what I do remember is losing to Nepal in the plate semi-final where the game was sort of in the balance and the quality of the spinners and the ability to play spin bowling. And Paul clearly had some decent spinners. And Shakti, an absolute legend of the game, a legend in Nepal cricket and associate cricket. I, I was very fortunate to play with him uh, and captain him when I captained the poker rhinos and the T20 competition over there, which was good fun. So I got to know him a bit. Constantly smiling all the time. But these, I think the difference at that level was the ability to play spin. You know, we just had no exposure to playing spin, although we had some spinners, you know, but coming up against a number of good spinners in that team was probably our downfall uh, from, from what I remember. But it was a close game, and I remember how distraught the players were after because we potentially could get into the play final, which would have been massive for us as a under-19 team. Yep, Shakti Gouch on 3-4-32, and he got your wicket. He ripped through the, the top of middle order, took 3-for-32. Uh, he got you out, Brendan McKercher, and Stephen Gilmore. Those are the, the three wickets. He got 2-3-4, and four, and Scotland went from 95-for-2 to all-out for 157, and it was Shakti and Sanjay Megmi, who was an off-spinner, who uh, did the damage there in that game. Mm-hmm. This episode of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket is also sponsored by Musa Cricket Stadium, the first turf wicket facility in the state of Texas, and now the first ODI accredited venue in the Lone Star State, located at 5515 McKeever Road, County Road 100 in Pearland. Five miles off the Bailey Road exit from State Route 288, a half hour south of downtown Houston, Musa Cricket Stadium includes fully enclosed locker rooms and change rooms, plus shower facilities after a day's play, as well as outdoor nets for all your training needs. Musa also has two nursery grounds on the north side of the stadium boundary available for use. For more information, visit www.musastadium.com. That's M-O-O-S-A stadium.com. Musa Cricket Stadium in Pearland, Texas. The Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast is also sponsored by Crickbuster. Based in Florida, Crickbuster is an ICC-designated official travel agent for the 2022 ICC Men's T20 World Cup in Australia. If you're a cricket fan living in the USA and you need match tickets, flights, hotels, stadium tours, or want to organize other sightseeing activities down under this October, Crickbuster is a one-stop shop for all of your touring needs. Visit www.crickbuster.com to begin planning your trip today. Now, you talked about trying to adjust and facing spin. Now, at that point in time, you said you hadn't really faced been like that, but over the years, I would argue two of the leading teams at associate level against spinners going against a stereotype, I guess if you could call it that, Ireland before they got to test status, you look at the guys who came up through the late 2000s and early 2010s, likes of Niall O'Brien, William Porterfield, Andy Balburnie, who I think is a fantastic player has been, those guys raised the bar in terms of the expectations for a spin at associate level, but Scotland too, take a look at a player like yourself, 
Cal McLeod. Everybody knows, follows associate cricket, what Cal McLeod did to the Afghanistan spinners in Zimbabwe. And then also a couple months later against Adel Rashid in the England tech and Richie Barrington. You go up and down the list of the Scotland order. Scotland is a team that prides itself on playing spin bowling well. What was that transformation like in terms of how that occurred over the course of the years? And what are some of the events you feel that kind of sparked that and spearheaded that increased focus or that transformation that led you from being a player or as collectively as a team and as a setup that struggled against spin because you're just not facing that kind of spin regularly to a team that now excels against it? I guess we'd be like any team when we were evolving we'd always talk about trying to play spin better. We'd talk about how how we would do that, but not to enough detail, I would say. You know, it's classic conversation that happens in the dressing room. Every game, the same things are said, but it's about how you how you manage that and how you actually find a way to improve it. We would have various groups of players over the years that would travel overseas to spin camps. That doesn't happen as much anymore because of the way the schedule is. But I know a number of our players did go to various spin camps, some in India, perhaps, or one in India, one in Dubai. So I guess that was starting the process of batting more against spin, but batting in foreign conditions against spin. But the real change, the real change for me was, was when Grant Bradburn came to Scotland and he spoke about how we need to improve, what we need to improve. And one of those points was, if we're going to be a full member nation, we're going to have to play spin really well because the middle overs are, are overs where the, the run rate would dry up and sides would end up getting 260 or something like that. So he spoke about how are we going to continue to find boundaries through the middle overs. So, so he challenged us to look to at least score a boundary and over, even through the middle overs where you think they would be you know, lower run rates and, and whatnot. That was the challenge. So, so we've continually were put under pressure at practice to find boundaries in various scenario games that he would play. And that encouraged us to play more positively against it, I think, and, and back ourselves against the spinners. We had a huge focus on rotating the strike, which is obvious, obvious but how do you do that? You don't just tell someone, I'll just knock it into the offside or just knock it into the light side. The huge, a big part about that is, is using your feet, getting down to the ball or getting a good stride in so you can control and manipulate the ball and negate the spin, or it was getting really deep in your crease. Uh, we would speak about getting deep in our crease, but where is deep in your crease? Are you going deep to the offside? Are you going straight back? Are you going to the leg side? And, and the answer was all of them. You know, you, had to, you have to manipulate your body and the ball to put it where you need it to go so you can rotate the strike. So that was one thing. And the other was playing the sweep shot play against the best spinners in the world if you can't sweep they're not going to give you very much and if you can sweep it then changes how they have to bowl at you so uh, you can look through our batting lineup and we've got I'm happy in saying this and I'm confident in saying this but I think we've got some of the best sweepers of the ball in the world I reckon one of them being Callum McLeod one of them being George Munsey uh, and you know that's you've also got Richie Barrington who is an amazing player of spin certainly one of our best players of spin and he's got the ability to sweep as well but he has he he'll use his power in other ways sometimes so yeah finding ways to rotate the strike but how would you do that finding ways to be brave enough to keep scoring and fight and how would you find boundaries they were two key areas that we discussed 
um, that would change change the way we we play against spin. I have to ask you a little bit more about that because this didn't really click for me as somebody who watches or somebody who observes. I didn't really understand the kind of science or, or the approach behind a sweep shot until probably about eight, 10 years ago. I was watching Andy Pick run a camp in New Jersey. He came down from Toronto when he was the ICC America's head at the time. And it really changed my own philosophy in terms of how to approach a net session in terms of focus training. And what he did was he spent, I think, two or three hours. All he did was sit halfway down the net on a bucket or bending on one knee, and he just underhanded balls every five seconds, every 10 seconds, nothing but sweeps for three hours. And then the next session, it was nothing but underhand the ball and guys practicing dancing down the wicket to try and hit and judging the length and figuring out, is this a ball I can come down the wicket to, or is this a ball I should stay in the crease to and, and that kind of stuff. And it showed when some of these guys who were junior players in America, in the past, the American players, you never saw them sweep. I can't tell you how many matches I saw where it just stood, stood out this star contrast where USA players struggled against spin, associate players in general struggle against spin, quality spin, but it was how they were struggling, what they were and were not doing. They wouldn't sleep. They wouldn't use their feet. And he, Andy Pick, uh, former Knott's bowler who's back at Knott's now, he spent a significant amount of time in Toronto and in the Americas and coached Canada and also spent a lot of time working with the U.S. setup. And it, it was about reshaping the thinking about how to go about training. And I saw it and it started to click for me. And just as a club level cricketer myself, when I go to the nets now, as a left-handed batter in particular, facing net bowlers to me is a complete waste of time because nobody knows how to bowl to a left-hander. They're spraying everything down the leg side. So I'm lucky if I get to hit one ball every two or three minutes because everything is behind my legs. I can't play anything. It's just it's pointless. Whereas I'll just wait to the end of the session. Everybody can run in ball face net bowlers, whatever, have a good time, whatever. I'll just wait to the end and have somebody come to me and I'll say, can you just give me 15 to 20 minutes of just underhanded deliveries? All I want to do is just practice my sweep. And I just want to practice judging the length if I want to come down and use my feet to these balls. And it, as a club level cricketer, I feel like it's produced some room because it took me almost a full summer of doing this before I felt confident enough to play a sweep shot in a match. It took thousands and thousands of underhands where I felt I could play in a match and not risk being LBW or having all sorts of other stuff happen. And it's unlocked for me as a club level player. If I can play the sweep shot just once and I middle it, the next ball almost every single time lands short. So not only have I opened up the sweep shot, I've opened up the cut shot of the pull shot because the bowler immediately overcompensates and drags the length back. And the things you talked about, manipulating the field, and open up different scoring options if you just focus on one shot all of a sudden it opens up two three four five different shots and it's it's fascinating for me for me to hear you talk about that and, and the focus that grant bradburn had on a specific not just you can say oh we need to play spin bowling better but how do you do it and clearly he had a, a map and a route laid out for you guys to do that and i'm just curious for you and some of the other guys that you observe in training, George Munson, we see not, it's not just the sweep, it's the reverse sweep and the, the unorthodox stuff he does. How much time is spent training in your eyes, whether it's years or a number of months to the point where you guys as a team collectively, or you personally start to feel confident where you could start playing those shots in a match situation 
and achieve results consistently. Yeah, like we're pretty fortunate that a couple of those players already were natural sweepers of the ball, actually. McLeod was a hockey player, so that helped him. Munzee just always wanted to do something different, so he's he was always playing these different shots. Barrow would probably be someone who I wouldn't class as a natural sweeper of the ball, but became very good at it. So yeah, it was it was practicing it. We often used strange methods actually, um, or or inventive methods. I would say, actually getting the hockey stick out and using a hockey stick to practice hitting. I guess sweeping the hockey stick round, trying to use the edge of it so it was a smaller point of contact, rolling the ball at someone so you're you're sweeping it off the floor. Um, so it was just different methods to try it, just to just to work on the, I guess the swing and the motion of it, get your positions right, getting low. You know, it's all the these are all the classic things that you'd say to someone if you want to sweep. What do you want to do? Get your head low, get your knee on the floor, watch the ball closely, swing high to low. That's you know if you read out a, a coaching manual, that's what it'll say. But it's a different story trying to do it. So some people like to get their leg in line with the ball. Some people sweep it behind, some people sweep it in front. It's it's such an individual thing, but you've just got to practice it in different scenarios. So what we did, yeah, it's very easy for someone to underarm the ball and, and guys do it all the time. And then you can try and practice it, someone overarming it. But the real gold in figuring out how to play it and forcing people to play it was putting people in scenarios that they had to find a boundary and they were forced to play it within a practice scenario. And we used to do that out in the middle. There wouldn't be any fielders. There would just be like poles stuck in the ground or big cones or whatever. And you knew where the fielders were. And then there might be a couple of guys just patrolling certain areas. And simply, you would lose the game if you didn't find a boundary because every dot ball that you'd face was worth three points, basically. So it would basically be the batters get to 21 or the bowlers get to 21. If you didn't rotate the strike or find a boundary, that would be three for every time. So before you knew it, you'd be the bowlers would be nine, nine nil up, you know, if you face three dot balls and you're staring down the barrel. So it forced us, these scenarios, some of the scenarios we played forced us to find boundaries. It wouldn't be really the same. It was always a spin scenario and we'd play every game, every practice. So yeah, it is about underarming uh, and then finding different methods of you actually practicing it using different different items to hit it with. So we used a hockey stick. Some guys would use one of those narrow cricket bats, but it was about sweeping it both ways. But it became very clear that people who batted, especially through the middle order, had to be able to sweep. So it was made very clear to them that you have to work in the shot. I guess that changed the options because as soon as you, you are able to play a sweep shot, even I forced myself to do it now and then, although I'm, I, I wouldn't class myself anywhere near the category that, of McLeod and Munsey and Barrington in terms of playing against spin, I would have a slightly different method, but it helps me play my game because these guys play it so well. So it becomes very hard for bowlers to bowl. So then even if I can do it, you know, you, you have to talk about the tactics around it too. Are you, are they bowling over the wicket and off spinner perhaps? Are you going to step outside the line and then sweep? And obviously that makes it harder to be given out LBW. Although on Saturdays you might question that option. <laughs> But these are the options you have to play. Have they got one point or have they got two points? If they've got one point, can you play the reverse? That brings that mid-wicket from player from mid-wicket over to backward point. It means you've got easier singles in mid-wicket. So all of a sudden, from you playing it, the options change for the bowler. Then they start thinking. You start putting them under pressure. 
So that's what the understanding is there for the importance of, of playing spin. So you can train it in many methods, but I think the big key for us wasn't just about how we trained it in terms of practicing the shot. It was about how we forced people to have to play it in practice. Essentially, what you're saying is, is also that if you wanted to get selected to play, if you were looking to push your way into the 11, you could score as many runs as you want. But in terms of how you score the runs, if you didn't show you were capable of playing these kind of certain shots, it more than likely was going to limit your chances of being selected for a squad or pushing for a place in the starting 11 in the event that somebody got injured or wasn't available. Runs, runs are your currency as a batter. Okay. <clears throat> so you know, you don't have to be able to play a sweep shot. I don't think I ever got to that stage. You don't have to be able to play it to get selected. But when you pick a, a, a squad, when you pick a, an 11 to go out and play, you have to try and put your team together around the skill sets that people need to play in these various roles. So I guess being an open batsman, you've got to be capable of playing the ball when it swings a little bit. Not that the white ball swings very long, but it can swing. Uh, and you've got to be able to play off good length and heavy length deliveries that guys are going to try and bash when you're out there. And if you're going to be back in the middle, you have to be capable of playing spin and being effective at rotating the strike uh, with still having an ability and an option to find boundaries if, if that's required. So um, that was certainly part of how you pull together a, a skill set for someone to play within certain roles in your team but it wasn't a necessity uh, it was just we were we were conveniently uh, and we had good players of of spin and players that were capable of playing that shot but runs is the currency you can you can score runs in any way you need to but we, we were fortunate to have those players with those skills at that time and still do one of the things that stands out to me about your game when i've watched scotland over the years especially in the victory against zimbabwe that was the first one over a full member in odi's and it got you the ESPN Crick Info Associate Batting Performance of the Year that came in 2017, was your manipulation of the field in terms of the power play and the field settings. And you're somebody who's always stood out. When you bat and when I'm taking photos on the boundary, I can pick out certain places where I know I'm going to get the best shots for Kyle Kutzer. And it's usually standing at mid on or mid off because your straight drives in the power play going back over mid on and off when they're up in the ring, you can set a clock to it and count on Kyle Kutzer playing that kind of shot. And again, it, it's changed my way of thinking in terms of just observing and watching the game. It just seems like a high percentage shot at that stage of the match. You always seem like you're somebody who's very aware of your field settings and how you can manipulate the field, but also low risk versus high risk. And I see a lot of guys who get caught on the boundary in the power play and it drives me bonkers, usually a, a deep square leg or something else point. like that. I'll, I'll, I'll talk exactly about that when you're finished, but yeah, carry on. But yeah, it's inexplicable to me how that can happen to a certain player. Are they not paying attention? Do they just, just risk reward? Why would you take on the, one of the two boundary riders in the power play when you've got so many other scoring options available? And what's always stood out to me about your game you can, people could say, oh, you're technically correct. You play through the B, blah, 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 blah. But to me, I look at it in terms of mid on and mid off or up. You drive in the air. It's an automatic boundary. It's, it's a low risk shot at that stage of the match. You look at your strike rate and people might say, oh, wow, Kyle Kutzer is somebody who's he's a big boundary striker. He's a big power header. I don't see that. Not, not, not to like be disrespectful in a sense, but I just see it as somebody who he's efficient 
he sees where the field is and this is the most efficient high percentage shot. And it might look like, Oh, he's, he's really powerful and he's playing, he's playing, you know, boundary hitting cricket. No, he's, he's playing high percentage cricket is what it looks like to me. So when you're playing in innings like that in a victory against Zimbabwe or any other innings for that matter, what is your mental strategy approach that allows you to come up with a, a match winning performance like that? Yeah. Well, there's a couple of things you said in there. I'll try and remember them all. One grant, said something that always stuck with me and it's a simple rule that I just stick with if I'm being honest and the game's changing a bit but and I'll explain why but the simple rule was in the power play just hit the ball where the fielders aren't it's as simple as that so if if long on's back you look to hit the ball obviously over the inner ring so that'll be in the offside yes you can get caught out I think the way the modern game is some people just talk about clearing boundary riders but I don't I don't believe in that method it's not something that I preach certainly in the method of clearing a fielder when you don't need the clear fielder when there's so many gaps so the comment of hitting the ball where the fielders aren't or hitting over the infielders is a clear one that I, I stick with I don't believe in clearing a boundary rider in the in the power play uh, I just think it's a it's a high percentage shot when you don't need to have those high percentage shots you, you can play a pretty low-risk game and still find boundaries. Another thing you talked about, like percentage, in my head, how the percentage game works is you try and play the game within your percentages, within your favour for as long as you possibly can until you need to step out of that. So if you can, you can imagine a dartboard, for example, you've got the inner circle, uh, like the, the bull ring or whatever, and you keep your game within that for as long as you can until you need to step into the next area where your percentages rise in terms of danger of getting out because you're maybe playing more risky shots. And then if you have to step outside of that, then, you know, your percentages rise again. So if you can be efficient and be effective staying within your game for as long as possible, you should score runs uh, semi-regularly. You know, it's not, it's not an exact science, obviously, but, if you bat well with your partner, some will have different strengths. So you've got to take that in consideration too. Some will help you score runs because they're scoring runs at different parts of the field. So that's how I would try and describe the percentage. Keep it within your favor for as long as you possibly can until you need to step outside of that. And you might need to step outside of it for an over or a couple of balls and then step back inside. You know, that's about controlling your game. So that's a couple of things that I would use. Now, the last one's gone for me, but this the simple rule simple rule for me was and it, it sort of clicked for me when when Grant said just hit it where the fielders aren't <laughs> you know don't talk about where the fielders are just hit it where they aren't and and keep the, the percentages in your favor for as long as possible the, uh, the other thing that I changed a number of years ago was about was my guard on the stumps so I used to bat in middle basically my whole career and I didn't really know why I did it I always remember people like Dale Benkenstein talking about changing guard to different bowlers at Durham and I was probably too naive and didn't really understand the angles. You know, if you think about the angles of people bowling at you, and I didn't didn't really appreciate it. And I was always worried about getting hit in the pads. Um, even though I nicked off basically my whole career, I was worried about getting in the pads. So then it just clicked to me. And I was I was I was watching England in a Test match actually, and half the players are batting on middle or leg and walking across the off. Jonathan Trott was one massive pads, but he never got out of LBW really, did he? So. And in my mind, I just thought, right, well, I'm going to stand in front of my stumps 
And the reason being is it means if the ball's coming straight at me, I know I have to play it. If it's outside my eye line, I know I can have a swing at it. And I back myself to hit the ball if it's straight. And also, when I the time of the innings when I play is all the fielders on the offside. <laughs> you got your slip, you got your covers, you got all these guys in the offside. If I stand in off stump, I can play straight. And then if they drift, drift sort of more onto my pads, sort of middle and leg, then I just look to hit mid on or just lean on it and it goes wide of mid wicket. So that's where the fielders aren't. And even if I'm getting an inside edge, I'm always getting off strike. So there was a method in the in the madness there that well, I might as well work in my game playing straight and hitting through the leg side because there's no fielders there. And then if they were bowling outside my line, it was I've had some good form over the last sort of seven years or so, I would say, and played some of my best ever cricket. And those are three things that I I changed and I understood with my percentages with risks, batting an off stump because I could line the ball up better and hitting the ball where the fielders aren't really simple, simple things. And I just I stick to that every game, whether I'm playing on Saturday for a club team or I'm playing for Scotland on, on a tour in, in USA. So they'll still be, still be my same methods and I'll stick to them as long as I can. And you'll go through peaks and troughs in terms of form and, and how well you're actually hitting the ball, but the rules still apply. That's some of the psychology behind that performance against Zimbabwe. It's really fascinating to hear you talk about that. And even as you're saying, I'm thinking, oh, next game I go out, I think I might take Garden off stump. So I yeah. <laughs> leave the ball yeah. easier. And yeah, it's psychologically. There's more, there's, there's, more, there's more to that off stump theory than, than that, but I'll get into the intricacies with you at some point. Don't worry. But it makes sense because one of my fears, if you're saying it as an international associate player of the decade, I'm thinking it must be a normal thing. It goes to everybody's mind. You stand on the stumps, you're thinking, oh, geez, I'm an LBW candidate. I don't want to be risking LBW. But what's the bowler thinking? Oh, if he's standing on the stumps, geez, he must be really strong in his legs. So I better not bowl straight. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm going to get punished. So there's, there's a yeah. cat and mouse game there. It's very fascinating. Well, to talk well, about it. Just to give you a technical, my technical theory behind it, is if I'm standing on middle stump or leg stump, what's the first thing you need to do to try and cover your stumps? is to try and get your head across. So what does that actually do? It actually means you're then pushing, getting your front leg across the stumps. You're trying to cover it. You're actually, is it easier to leave the ball when you have a leg stump guard or is it easier to leave the ball when you have an off stump guard? Well, in my opinion, it's easier to leave the ball when you have an off stump guard because you know where it is. You don't have to get your head across to try and get in line with the ball to see where it is. So. If you're standing an off stump, all you have to do is think about going towards the bowler. You don't have to think about covering your stumps because you're already covering them. So that that's that's part of my theory. And and I wish I'd done it earlier in red ball cricket in my career, to be honest, because like I said earlier, I nicked off a lot, but it was because I was batting sort of more in middle stumps. So playing and leaving a moving ball became trickier because you had to you had to make sure you covered it. And you know, we've all been there where we've left a ball and it's hit the top of off or maybe top of middle or maybe halfway up middle, perhaps. But that's because you're trying to align yourself with the ball. So I just wish I'd done it earlier in my career. And then I score more runs in the leg side because there's less fielders there. So a few simple, simple things in my head. You know, it might not be for others, but that that's how it, the game works for me. You can write oh, this down in your notepad another time. <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense. I just just hearing you say it. Ah, oh, again, it's. But I think there's there's a lot of value here in that. Just whether you're an international cricketer, club player, or any other 
person who's playing or watching it, oh, some of this stuff, is it really that simple? Wow, that makes sense. Why didn't I think of that earlier? Like you said, if you'd done that earlier, wow, how many more runs? Sometimes it's just the simple things that make such a big difference. So you talked about that in the Zimbabwe innings that is some of the methodology that led to that success in that century and that match-winning century in that game. That was the first victory for Stalin over a full member in ODIs. And then a year later, the match against England, you had that brilliant opening partnership with Matthew Cross that really set the tone for that game. 103-run opening stand. You ended with 58 off 49 balls and Cal McLeod, 149 out in that game. George Muncie also big role with his 55 off 51. And then more recently, the victory against Bangladesh. Very Three contrasting matches in the T20 World Cup. You guys were in a huge hole, dug yourselves out. Chris Graves had that incredible match. But it wasn't just stylistically how these three victories happened. The thing that stands out to me as well is the way you guys celebrated each victory. The Zimbabwe game was an emotional burden lifted. You had all these matches over the years, all these opportunities that you couldn't finish off. Then it finally happened. And it was like monkeys off your back. And then you go out against England a year later. And there were some other things that went into that. Just the events of the World Cup qualifier in Zimbabwe and the heartbreak there. And some of the... I don't want to say bitterness, but there, there, I would imagine there was a certain level of a sour taste in your mouth knowing that, hey, you really should be in the World Cup. You were good enough to be in the World Cup in, in England in 2019. And here's an opportunity to show we do deserve to be there against England by going out and beating them. And you did at the eventual World Cup champions a year later. But then Bangladesh, very different circumstances and how you celebrated. The, the Zimbabwe victory was a huge reaction after the game. The England victory took it to an exponentially higher level and the crowd that was there obviously contributed to that. But at the world cup, there was a lack of celebration almost. It was like you had progressed to the stage where you expect these kind of things to happen and it shouldn't be surprising anymore. And you belong to be there and you go undefeated through that opening round to progress into the group stage. So I'm just curious, the progression in terms of not just the results, obviously Scotland had that famous infamous, depending which side of the fence you're on streak of not getting a victory in the world cup that finally was snapped against Hong Kong in 2016 at the T20 World Cup. But then after that and after the victory against Zimbabwe, the mentality, how things are changing where, hey, we beat Bangladesh. Yeah, we're supposed to, or we think we're capable of it. So why should we be going bonkers? Like this is a historic moment. And I'm just curious from, from your perspective, somebody who's been at the center of this historic progression, how the mentality has changed from your point of view. I think... A Scottish team's always had, always thinks that we're capable of winning games of cricket, but did we always believe it? Uh, no disrespect to earlier years and, you know, some had great years under Craig Wright uh, and won some successful tournaments and, and did really well. But in terms of when you're playing against full members, I'm not convinced. I think we thought we could, but we didn't believe we could. And that's something that we've spoken about a few years and you use the words, we belong. Actually, that's something that I, I mentioned a lot, and we mentioned a lot as a group, that we belong at this level, and we just have to keep showing people. And, you know, you can keep talking about it all the time. And look, those victories against Zimbabwe and England obviously raised our profile, the victory against Sri Lanka, which was, I think, before the Zimbabwe game. Yeah. Um, the, the Sri Lanka match was in the build-up to the Champions Trophy. So early that summer... Sri Lanka came, it was in Kent, the matches were yeah. played. 
they played you guys as preparation for the Champions Trophy, and you had that humongous partnership with Matthew Cross, where both you guys scored centuries. It was, you know, we're talking about um, our belief, and it was about a change of language, really, around the dressing room, a change about how we, just how we spoke about playing against these these full members and being as confident as we possibly could and believing in ourselves. But a lot of also came down to our training methods and, and how we were pushing ourselves as well and how we we're challenging ourselves within scenarios uh, on practice occasions, not simply being okay with being okay. It seems a strange thing to say, but you know, you could turn up to practice and you, you just practice okay and go home and be happy with it. But that wasn't in our, in our mentality at the time. So certainly you talk about the Bangladesh game and we do believe that we can win games of cricket against sides like that. And Bangladesh, before that game, I just, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure they just beat in Australia and beaten someone else prior to the World Cup. And they were coming in with good form. Even though we went in believing we could win, I think we were blown away in some areas of that game because they were good in some areas of that game. Um, the use of the Yorker, Focus Gibson, after after the game, Taskinam and Ramin and Seifedin, bold swinging Yorkers to start start the game off, slash resting field. We'd never played against anyone who's going to run up and bowl a swinging fast Yorkers to start. Who would do that? Why wouldn't you run up and bowl a length? We've been crying out for players throughout the order to win us games of cricket and guys are standing up was a great sign for us. And it, it was, we believed that these guys could do it, but the fact that they actually went out and did it was um, pretty spectacular. Uh, Mark Watt standing up with the bat, Chris Greaves standing up with the bat, you know, everyone just playing their part. And I guess the rest is history, you know, believing that we could win. It's such a mind shift. You have to do it by change of language, I think. One more question about this before I get into the USA stuff specifically. This is the first time in a long time, maybe perhaps your entire career, where you're not actually going to have to go through a pressure-packed qualifying process for the next World Cup that's in Australia because you made it through the group stage. I'm confused. There's these T20 World Cup qualifiers in Oman and, and in Zimbabwe. There's no Scotland. There's no Namibia. I'm very confused. These are two of my bread and butter teams I love covering. And I don't get to cover you guys in these qualifiers anymore. I'm sure you're thrilled about that. Well, uh, yeah, certainly it's a, it's a less stressful route than what we've had every other time. It's kind of strange, to be honest. Qualifying tournaments bring an amazing atmosphere, a lot of pressure, a lot of exciting games. They almost always come down to run rate at some stage or other. So it, it's kind of what I've grown up living and playing, you know, uh, these these pressure moments and you know, there, there is something about earning the right through a qualifying tournament, which only associate teams really have the experience of playing in and the excitement it actually brings and, and the reward it brings in terms of achievement when you do actually qualify for World Cup. So yeah. we're fortunate to have done what we needed to do to reach the, the World Cup um, later this year already. On the flip side, though, you touch on it. Those games are so pressure-packed. It provides incredible preparation and situations where you test yourself and encounter things that help build you up for what you might experience in the World Cup itself, the fact that you're not exposed to those things now and you're not getting those high-intensity preparation matches, are, are you concerned that it might backfire at all from the standpoint that you're not going to have those matches as part of your 
fixture list in the lead up to the World Cup. So you're not going to get as many high intensity pressure situations that you're exposed to before this next World Cup in Australia. Definitely. Yeah, that is a that is a huge part of it. You know, playing in these these qualifying tournaments is are often where we get the bulk of our cricket at times and the bulk of our competition, bulk of preparation in many ways. If, if you make it through that, that's classed as preparation, isn't it? So it's something that we have to get our heads around and, and make sure we, we get the cricket in that we need and the preparation that we need as right as we possibly can get it. But yeah, it it's nice not to have it, but I completely agree with you. It's certainly something that helps get you prepared and ready. You just can't beat game scenarios and pressure situations because that's that's actually what round your team off and make you make you a good team now usa versus scotland over the years you go through the history of matches this might shock a lot of people usa actually has a winning record over scotland i don't think it's going to shock you because you've been a part of all those matches and on the losing sides so you, you're fully aware of the history in those games and that begins officially in 2010 at the T20 World Cup qualifier that was in the UAE. USA has faced Scotland twice in the T20 World Cup qualifier in official matches, won both those games. One was a warm-up game in 2013. It was an unofficial match. And then the two ODIs, you split the two ODIs in the UAE in 2019. So every single match between the two countries has taken place in the UAE. That first game, I want to start with that one, 2010, this was a little bit controversial because USA was given a wild card. Don Lockerbie, who was the USA CEO at the time, he pulled some strings. Uh, USA essentially replaced Namibia as a negotiation between Don Lockerbie, got USA into that event when they really shouldn't have been there. And on the opening day, USA holds Scotland to 120 for seven. And then it was a six wicket victory in the end. And from my perspective, and I'm not, I'm not looking at this through red, red white, and blue uh, colored tinted glasses here. But six wicket victory, I think, flattered Scotland. You guys were getting smashed. And there were two or three quick wickets that fell in the last over or two. But Carl Wright and Lennox Cush had a 97-run partnership that really took the game out of reach. And it was a very, very comfortable victory in the end. USA won by five balls to spare. Coming up against USA for the first time in that match, you open up the batting out for a duck in the second over. Were you guys shocked or caught off guard by how competitive USA was being off the international radar for as long as they'd been at that point in time? Again, it was an unknown game, really. We didn't really know who we were coming up against. So, yeah, I guess possibly we were we were shocked by what happened. And I, th- I also think we were probably going through a bit of a transition phase as a team ourselves and certainly not playing the cricket we are today. But it was a, certainly a good grounding when we when we lost to USA. You know, I guess you wouldn't possibly expect them to have turned us over at that stage, being a wild card. But it just shows what cricket's like and what associate cricket's like. And yeah, I remember pretty much being outplayed really on the day. Fair play to them. We were probably caught cold. I would say. In your mind, how would you characterize the USA Scotland rivalry over the last decade? Inconsistent, because we don't. <laughs> <laughs> really play each other very much what stands out to you about when you come up against usa compared to other teams what has stood out to you as being different or unique about usa compared to some of the other associate competition you face probably the huddle at the start of the game is one of them it's typically i guess from what i've seen from other sports in america typically american in terms of 
I guess the the shout out and and the chant or whatever you call it, but I like it really. You know, showing unity. You know, as a as a group, I I think some of it's a little bit unknown still with the American team, although I think they're building building quite a powerful unit. Really, some some exciting players, some very dangerous players in there. So the way I feel about that team is, if you get them on their day, they're going to be a tough team to beat. I'm not sure yet they've quite found the right mould and figured out the style of cricket that they want to play yet in a consistent fashion but they're certainly filled full of dangerous players so I actually also see with that huddle and things like that I also see a team that are really proud actually to play for America you know I think they're they're making a scene in terms of what they can do in on the international stage and they're sort of they're really driving USA cricket now as a playing unit uh, I just feel it's always going to be a battle against them, but you just you just hope that that we play well and and USA don't have quite a, as powerful a day because you know on a day they've got players throughout it can be dangerous. We've seen it in US Open now as a number of players. We've seen it on a couple of occasions playing for Scotland having lost to them, but the team that they're putting out now is certainly way and above what they had back then. 2012 T20 qualifier in Dubai at match was at the ICC Academy. And USA, that was a much tighter contest, but USA chased the target of 162 with a ball to spare, won by seven wickets. And yeah, even though that was the seven wicket victory versus the six wicket win a few years earlier, I thought that was a much, much closer contested match. You were captain of Scotland in that game. Usman Truja took three for 39 for USA. Stephen Taylor, who's the only remaining player from the USA squad now in the lineup that's going to be coming up in Texas. He's the last remaining player. Open the batting that came 40 off 30 balls in the successful chase. Whereas you've got quite a lot of the core players from the squad of 2012 who are still hanging around now in Scotland. When you think of a guy like Stephen Taylor or some of the other players on the scene, but especially that guy at that point in time, that was really Stephen Taylor's coming of age in that tournament. He was only 18 or 19 at the time and really unknown for most people in, in international cricket and for him to perform the way he did performed very well against Ireland in that tournament uh performed in a crucial against Scotland in that game had some other good performances what do you remember about it? Stephen Taylor at the start of his career compared to Stephen Taylor in modern times I don't remember a huge amount about that game actually I seem to remember more about the game in Abu Dhabi but Stephen Taylor he always he, he always it's a big, strong guy, isn't he? And when he's coming into bat, you're always thinking, right, you know, you think you need to get him out early. You know, you know, he can be a dangerous player. So I think he's proved himself on a number of occasions how dangerous he can can be. So he's clearly, clearly been a key player for them over the years and, and still is. But we, we really haven't played against USA enough to know everything that we should do about them. You know, often you we, we play against a number of sides a lot and you you sort of get into a rhythm and right okay this is what they'll this is what they'll produce this is what they'll bring up in the day this these guys will probably bowl these overs you know there is information out there but it's different just looking at information as as opposed to playing against these guys so yeah uh, Stephen Taylor's going to be a key wicket for us and then most recently the two ODIs you started off the tri-series in the UAE again 35 run loss to USA December 9 2019 so three victories in a row for USA. You guys were on a decade-long losing streak yeah. <laughs> until you finally broke it a few days later. You got you got the victory 
four wicket win at the ICC Academy, chasing a target of 246 with seven balls to spare. I would say we were we were up against it on that day as well, actually. And it was Josh Davey and Safian Sharif that got us over the line on that day. You are correct, sir. Your memory is much better than you claim, Kyle. Something about the USA, they seem to have one over us at the moment in terms of the win-loss ratio. So we'll be trying to set that right when we when we get out to uh, Houston. The other thing about that series too, again, you talked about you. one of the words you used is, is consistency or inconsistency. I mean, USA came into that series in Dubai. This was just literally a month after you've qualified for the T20 World Cup. Yes, it's a different format. You're playing one-day series versus T20 World Cup qualifying. But at associate level, there really isn't much differentiation in terms of the squad selection. Associate teams are generally picking their best 11, best 14. You don't really find too many associate teams picking a, a quote, quote, a T20 specialist squad versus a ODI specialist squad because more often than not, the funding that's allocated to associate countries, they're putting their best 10 players or best 12 players on a central contract or a partial central contract. So they expect those guys to play all those games no matter what. So you're essentially facing the same guys across formats. And for USA to not even be in Dubai at the qualifier a month earlier, they flopped in the regional qualifying event in Bermuda. So they have that happen. They're not even there in Dubai. And then they show up a month later and they beat Scotland to start off the tri-series. When you're coming up against a team, like you said, you don't face that often. Five matches spread across 12 years or 10 years at this point, but it's going to be another four matches, you know, over the course of, of 12 years by the time the series is done in Texas next month. What are the different challenges that you face in terms of, yeah, the, the preparation? You t- said, oh, you can watch video and there's a lot more video access out there now for the scouting element at associate level. But being able to face a team consistently and knowing what you're coming up against, uh, if it's a Nepal or a UAE or an Ireland uh, prior to their ascension to test level where you were facing them on a consistent basis, the Netherlands would be in that group as well, versus a USA where part of the reason why you've got the record you have against them, one win and three losses, because you never know what you're coming up against. It's a different squad every time, and it makes preparation difficult. What are the challenges that go into facing a team like USA aside from the skill element? Yeah, I guess it's the unknown a little bit. What will USA produce in day? But some of it is, you know, making sure we don't underestimate, you know, we're, we're an experienced side now. So we have to respect every side, whether we played them a lot or we haven't played them at all. But you have to respect the game, the basics as well as you can, as long as possible, especially against sides that you don't really know. But look, we know enough about the USA team now. We have to be as professional as we possibly can to make sure we get the results that we that we need. USA or any team within this Cricket World League too. There's no mugs in this division. There's very few makeup teams anymore in associate cricket. Not that any team is a makeup team, you know, but you know what I mean? Teams that uh, are still evolving, I guess. There's none of those anymore. Every team you come up against now can beat each other. That's what I think about this Cricket World League too. Every team can beat each other in this in this division. You see Oman at the top who have lost lost a handful of games and they, they've virtually played everyone and successfully won the majority of their games, but they've lost lost a few games. If you don't turn up in the day or one of those players in the opposition side has a day out against you, which everyone's capable of, you know, you're going to be under pressure. So 
there's quality players throughout all these teams now. I think that there's no room for underestimating any team. Uh, and that's exciting, you know, that's exciting. Imagine what could be done actually if there was just a little bit more support there or if, if cricket just gave you just that little bit more. Imagine what could actually be achieved. That is the uh, never-ending philosophical question of associate cricket since the dawn of associate membership, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, look, I, I'm hugely impressed with USA cricket. Look, I, I don't know the, the ins and outs necessarily of it and what happens within USA itself, but in terms of the, the teams and the, the players that they're producing or, or putting out in the field, it's, it's pretty exciting. It's something that excites me, actually, about, about the world game at the moment. It's a it's a place that you know I wanted to take off in terms of, of playing at, but it's also a place that I'm really interested in in terms of how the cricket develops. So, yeah, exciting times, I guess. Now, with this series coming up, it starts on a bank holiday weekend. It's bank holiday weekend in the UK, May 28th, May 29th, Saturday and Sunday, and then have the bank holiday Monday as well. In the US, it's Memorial Day weekend, so it's a holiday weekend in both countries. What's the likelihood that there are going to be a lot of traveling family members and or traveling supporters who make this a once in a lifetime trip to come out to Texas for the start of the Tri-Series, Kyle? Well, here's hoping that there's a very good chance of that, but um, we'll just have to, we'll have to wait and see. There, there might be a few people in watching it at some of these grounds. Well, at the Musa ground, I've heard that there's a potential that there'll be a, a bit of a crowd in, but I guess only time will tell. Hopefully we can play all play some exciting cricket and have some last ball finishes to keep everyone entertained. But fingers crossed, look, the more people that come and support us, the better. I think associate cricket is really exciting to watch. I, th I do believe that we need to start selling it a little bit more and making it an occasion for people to come and watch, you know. Uh, and we are there to entertain. At the end of the day, you know, that's what, cr that's what cricket is, there to entertain. And I think there's plenty of players amongst all the sides now that play some pretty special cricket so it'd be nice to pull a bit of a crowd in are you expecting to see some flags of the lion rampant <laughs> i hope so let's see them see any flags the more flags the better all right kyle favorite 11 time to wrap up the show 11 questions cricket and non-cricket ready to rock and roll ready your favorite roommate on any cricket tour i'm gonna start with Monib iqbal from years ago, I've had a lot of good roommates, but I'm going to say Money Bickbell. I don't know, he's just a hilarious bloke, a great friend of mine. What is your favorite way to spend a 14-hour flight or a two-leg flight to the World Cup in Australia, New Zealand, or a 10-hour flight from Scotland or the UK to Texas? How do you pass the time on a cross-oceanic long-haul flight? Well, if there was a preference, it would be in business class, but it's unlikely that'll be that'll be the case <laughs> try and stick in a few movies uh see if i can fall asleep and maybe try and play a few silly gags and a few players on the plane maybe i don't know just keep yourself occupied your favorite scottish delicacy i would 100 percent go with haggis 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 i do and I, I enjoy haggis in the morning what is the secret to a good haggis that someone else has cooked it for me probably <laughs> Your favorite cricket ground experience that you've had as a player? I absolutely loved playing. I'm going to name a couple here, but I absolutely loved playing at Nelson. It was an amazing ground. I did okay, so that helped. Playing at Lords was was pretty special. But I, I think the overall experience of everything that's happened and what happened in the day, I'm, I'm 
I'm just going to have to say the Grange because we've had some amazing days there. Turn up, there's just a nice vibe about the place. Yeah. I tell you, playing at the SCG was pretty cool too, but it was just a warm-up game, so that doesn't count. Question doesn't define international or club or one. It could be anything. It could, it could be Stonywood Dice with the airport and seeing people's faces through the windows on the plane. Any, any ground. <laughs> Well, I, I I left the SCG in a helicopter, so that was something new that I haven't done before. So we, we had to go up to the opening ceremony, and the, a helicopter landed outside the ground to pick pick a couple of us and fly away, try and get up to Melbourne. So that was pretty cool. But yeah, I, I can't beat the Grange. The Grange just does it for us at the moment. Your favorite cricketer of all time? I would say it's between two, other than obviously family members. Hey, it could be a family member. I would say that's that's the answer. When I was a youngster, it used to be Brian McMillan. Brian McMillan was the guy who played for South Africa all rounder, long hair, exactly the type of player and person I I am. Ball fast, hit the ball, <laughs> hit the ball hard, and I was long hair. That's me all over. Your favorite non cricket athlete of all time? Michael Jordan played played a lot of basketball when I was younger. He was all over the media and stuff wasn't he listening to his episode on Netflix pretty amazing person how he how he did what he did and how he pushed other people sometimes controversially maybe but he seemed yeah what a player your favorite place to eat out on tour away from home because you don't have to split the bill is Nando's always a good feed it gets hammered by the county players all the time favorite restaurant one that I would like to go to It'd be a place called it just out just on the coast around Cape Town called the Brass Bell. It's just on the coast. It's got the windows up, water splashes up in the windows. Just yeah, amazing spot. The Brass Bell in Cape Town. Yeah, the Brass Bell. But you also you also threw a Nando's in there. Yeah, that's because it, there's no no confusion splitting the bill. Just pay for your own. Like you know, some, sometimes it can be very tricky when you sit down and people go, "Oh, well, I haven't had that." Nando's, just ease. This is a follow-up, 7A. If you're a Nando's guy, what is your go-to Nando's marinade? Do you like it uh, lemon and herb, coconut and lemon, mango and lime, medium, hot, double extra hot? What's your marinade? Lemon and herb for me. I don't, I don't push the boat out too far. I like the taste of it. And then what I will do, though, is get a bit of perinase on the side. That just sort of sends me over the edge. I am also a lemon and herb guy. I don't try and make it too fancy. I, I, lemon and herb, but I'll get the peri salted chips. I like having the peri peri yeah. on the chips. Yeah, yeah, you can't beat it. Can't beat it. See, you like the Nando's too, so that was a good shout. I'm a, I'm a big Nando's guy. Nando's and Five Guys, Kyle. Those are my two go-to. guys. I'll maybe give Five Guys another go soon. Uh, you'll get your chance in Texas. I can assure you there's, there's no shortage of Five Guys around there. Your favorite beverage? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with alcoholic. Okay just because there's a lot of good drinks out there. But if there was something that I would drink with friends or family from over the years, it would be brandy. And it's clip drift brandy. It's the cheapest brandy going. It used to be five or six rand a drink when I first went out to Cape Town, which would be about 40p. It's still still up there. Your favorite pizza topping? It's got to be barbecue. You, you have to have a pizza with barbecue sauce on it. As the topping barbecue meat feast from Domino's can't beat it. Well, there's no shortage of that in America too. Might be might be uh, 
having plenty of that down in I, I out of every pizza that I eat not that I think about this all the time but if if I am judging a pizza I judge it on that barbecue meat feast your favorite movie of all time I do quite enjoy comedy Will Ferrell's got to be one of those guys for me or Adam Sandler over the years of some of his movies but Step Brothers just does it for me cracks me up every single time do love a good comedy and generally they're quite they're quite light pretty light-hearted really last but not least your favorite binge show to watch whether it's netflix amazon prime hulu paramount plus any other streaming service whether it was during the pandemic or some other time when you've got an awful lot of free time to kill what's your go-to show that if it comes on or you see somebody else watching it you you can't pass up you sit down and you stay put i'm not sure i've got a go-to because we've gone through quite a few now and they're kind of finished, so it's not a go-to anymore. So I'm not going to go back to it unless there's another series. But I'll tell you the most recent one we watched, which was an experience. It was called Yakimoz. And it was on Netflix. It was one of the top rated, but it was dubbed over. So it was like, it was about a submarine. It was in the top five on Netflix. So we just started watching it. It was dubbed over. So at first, and it was like, you're not going to watch this. This is rubbish. But then, you know, it just kind of, you see what happens, you just sort of get hooked in. So that's the most recent one. I don't, I don't necessarily have a go-to. We've literally watched so many in the last two years. Netflix has been a lifesaver. Yakimos. Yakimos, yeah. So, so what is this? Is it Turkish? What, what's the language? Yeah, from? I think it's Turkish. Yeah, it's Turkish. Yeah. We've been through Cobra Kai. We've been through them all. I, I actually can't believe I carried on watching it. The acting was so bad, but we did. Kyle Kutzer, thanks for coming on. Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast presented by Dream Cricket. I'll give you the final word. Anything else you want to say about your cricket journey that people might not know about you that you feel that they should know? Well, I'm just going to make sure I follow Stars and Stripes on uh, Spotify so I can listen to all the other podcasts. But thanks for your time. Thanks again to Kyle Kutzer for coming on the podcast. And I can tell you, I've already changed some of the things I do in my approach to cricket just in the course of one match after talking to Kyle and hearing the psychology about how he approaches batting. It's something that I think a lot of people can benefit from, whether you're a club cricketer, an international cricketer, a fan, or anybody else interested in the game. And I want to thank him again for coming on the podcast ahead of USA's home ODI series that begins on May 28th in Perland, Texas. I want to remind everybody, if you haven't already done so, please go to patreon.com to become a patriot supporter of the podcast. Everybody who subscribes on there helps keep the podcast happening on an episode-by-episode basis. I appreciate all of your support. And I also want to remind everybody that you can subscribe, get the latest editions of the Stars and Stripes Cricket Podcast in video format on YouTube and in audio format on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor FM, and other podcasting locations. That's it for this episode. I'm Peter Delpin. I'm reminding everybody, God bless America, and God bless American cricket. (laughs) 